Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. I want to say here at the beginning, thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show. Uh, you might not have any idea how much work he does behind the scenes, but it's immense, and he gives of his time so generously. So thank you so much, Ed. Uh, he's always thinking about ways to improve what we're doing and believe me, we don't always give him the best audio to work with, and he he definitely improves things along the way. So thank you, Ed. In this episode, we have Dr. Andrea Berlin coming to talk about her work in early Judaism, the, about the Hasmoneans and their expansion in Galilee. And uh, I, I met Andrea for the first time when I was in Israel studying at the Albright Institute, and I think the world of her, I think she's fantastic as a scholar, really engaging, asked me great questions when I was working on my doctoral dissertation, and uh, I'm, I was grateful. I'm grateful to her for her, um, for all the conversations we had at that time and, and looking over what I was writing, and uh, so it's great to have her on this podcast, and she'll be talking with Kyle and Chris about uh, her archaeological and historical and literary work, so I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So, thanks for listening. Welcome back, On Script Biblical World listeners. Today we have a great episode. I'm Kyle Keimer, and I'm joined today by my co-host Chris McKinney, and we're chatting with Professor Andrea Berlin. She's the James R. Wiseman Chair in Classical Archaeology and Professor of Archaeology and Religion at Boston University. And Aside from her numerous, numerous publications, books, articles, you name it, she does a lot for ASOR and other organizations. And so I'm sure many of our listeners are quite familiar with with uh, Andrea and her work. And today we're going to be grilling her on some of the uh, some of this recent work about the Maccabees, and particularly looking at the region of Galilee, because this is where uh, Andrea has done a, a lot of her archaeological work. Uh, but also, Chris and I are interested in this, so we thought. Hey, you know what? We'll we'll just tie everything together, and we're gonna we're gonna go with it. So, Andrea, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. All right, well, it's great to have you on. Now, before we kind of get into some of the the real meaty questions, can you just give us, give us a little background? Because I know you've worked in the Galilee, and you focus, you know, you're a specialist in kind of Hellenistic Roman period uh, archaeology. You've worked at Tel Anafa, Tel Kadesh. What drew you to Galilee as opposed to other regions in in Israel? You know, anymore, that seems like such a good question. Recently, people are in, people are encouraged to start with research agendas and big questions and pick the areas that they are interested in. But back when I started, it wasn't like that. I was in graduate school at the University of Michigan, and all the graduate students in archaeology needed to go on one of the excavations that was being run by the by the faculty. So there were two ongoing excavations the year that I entered. One was at Carthage in Tunisia in North Africa, and the other was at this little nothing site in northern Israel called Tel Anafa. And it wasn't it wasn't pursued by the the faculty member and director Sharon Herbert because it was in Galilee in particular, or in Israel in general, but because 
it was a Hellenistic and Roman period site. So it was a site that was part of the larger classical world and on the eastern margins of it. And I just thought that sounded more interesting than Carthage. I, myself, before I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, had already excavated in Israel. I'd excavated at Tel Sheva when I graduated from high school, and I excavated at Tel Khalif under the Lahab Research Project. And you were done with the South? You wanted to move further north? <laughs> I just, I, I already knew Israel, so it didn't seem crazy to me or any kind of a reach. But I was in a classical archaeology program and thinking about the Greeks and the Romans. And I went to Tel Anafah to look at Greek and Roman life on the periphery of the Greek and Roman world. And it just so happened that it was in Galilee. Good, good. Well, and, you know, you've mentioned a couple of things and we'll, we'll delve into some of these, you know, the, the whole idea of periphery or even borders and interaction amongst different groups we have in antiquity. And, and Chris and I, as kind of more Bronze Age and Iron Age focus in our own research, kind of delve into this in, in our work as well. And it's, it's a, a really interesting but important question that I think has really become or come to the fore in so many periods, particularly in Israel, because at oftentimes it is the boundary between these different these different groups. So before I, I jump into another question, Chris, do you have anything you want to jump in and add right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, just as kind of giving us some some backdrop a bit to who were some of the the players, you know, involved in this in this period. I mean, Kyle and I have done episodes in the past where we're talking about, you know, Philistines arriving on the scenes and the coast and Israelites maybe arriving, maybe coming from within, maybe mixing, uh, and the Canaanites are there too, and there's all these other ites around. And, um, and, and what's so interesting, as Kyle kind of alluded to, is, is you see these in, in, different, in different regions, in their, um, whether you're talking about the, the, the Galilee or the Shvela. And I, I just wonder if you could give us some, some background about, uh, maybe put some of the, the chess pieces or risk pieces on the board uh, for who are we talking about in these in these regions as, you know, the world has really changed since the Iron Age. Um, and uh, as we're moving into the Second Temple period and beyond, uh, who, who's up there in the region of Galilee that um, the Hasmoneans and later characters in the New Testament might interact with? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And um, the answer to it gets at the heart of one of the things that makes this particular region and the sites that I've worked at so fascinating. There are modern boundaries, uh, and there are ancient and current topographical regional zones and pathways and networks. And one of the things that I learned very soon working at Tel was that it was in the backyard of Tyre. It was in the backyard of the southern Phoenician city of Tyre. And that made me think harder and with more focus about the relationship between distance, identity, and material remains. Because Talanafa and the Hula Valley is a considerable distance from Tyre. And my ability to recognize Tyrians there was based completely on material culture. Talanafa is a tiny site we don't know its ancient name. I guess it must have had one. It wasn't a city. It wasn't even a town. It was a rural villa that was far, far away from the coast. It was a trek. 
And yet it had all this material culture from Tyre, which struck me as very deliberate, very deliberate on the parts of the people who were living there. They wanted to demonstrate to somebody their cultural affiliations. Who were they showing off to? There were others up there at the time that the Tyrians were living there, and the others were, were Jews, Hasmoneans. So it's a small area that was already crowded with people from these two recognizably different origins. Which is a really interesting thing, and it just goes to show you that there is this continuity to a certain degree in a geographic uh, reality. And, you know, we have this phrase already in the, the Hebrew Bible of Galilee of the nations, and it's just as much so in later the Hellenistic, I mean, through the Persian period into the Hellenistic period, you know, Hasmoneans, once they kind of uh, expanded to the region as well. And it is this melting pot, if you will, of all these different cultures. And I think you are really addressing some really interesting questions here about you know, the nature of political power, the nature of what we do with the archaeology and how we identify specific political players, even ethnic people or ethnic groups, if you will, and when it's meaningful and when it's trade or, or something else. And so, you know, this is why we really wanted to delve into Galilee because it's just, you know, such an easy question to answer after easy question to answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Galilee um, is a place that repays thinking about in just about any period you look at it, because it's topographically very precise and distinct, but it is really accessible to a variety of places that it's in between. It is equidistant in terms of access from Tyre on the coast, Damascus to the east, and the Jezreel Valley, and then points south. It's very easily accessed from the Jordan River Valley, or coming up along the west, up the coast. So a lot of people can feel, and did feel, we have a stake in this land. And it was land worth having a stake in. That's another point about it that really matters. All of these societies, even the very worldly cosmopolitan ones of the Hellenistic and Roman period, were agriculturally based. Almost everybody depended on, and most people were, agriculturalists. And Galilee is very fertile. It's well-watered. Water is easily accessed, both naturally from springs and rivers and in, in rain. It's a safe place. That way, you don't really run the risk of drought that stunts your harvest. There are olive trees abundantly, which was one of the most lucrative agricultural products of antiquity. So Galilee was worth getting a piece of. Yeah. And not, not to mention its own nature, but you also have kind of international trade coming in, whether it's talking about north-south, kind of connecting the region of you know, Syria and Egypt or Arabia and the Mediterranean world. And so everyone is flowing through the Galilee as opposed, you know, there's other routes to the South, but, you know, coming through portions of Galilee, you're bringing in external um, interest, revenue, um, wealth as well. Now, oh, sorry, go ahead. You're going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say that makes Galilee a place worth living in for the people who are there because they're in a nice place, but they're not cut off from the outside world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, can I can I jump in here for just a second? I would say that you know, in your description 
of thinking about Tel Anafa, for instance, uh, which I believe is just south of like Tel Dan and and Caesarea. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting that even in that passage in Judges uh, 17 and 18, where you have the um, you know the taking of Dan by the Danites where they take Laish. It says, you know, that it's just this great city that had no dealings with anyone, not even the Sidonians, and it had a great situation. But of course, the implication is, wouldn't it be great if we took it? Then we could have dealings with the, the Sidonians. And so, I mean, across, across time, you know, these geographical implications, these, you know, agricultural implications, they mattered, um, whether we're talking about the Iron Age, or whether we're talking about the Hellenistic period or, or beyond. And it's just always so interesting to see um, the more things change in terms of the players, the more things stay the same in terms of the, the geography in this in this dynamic, whether it's empires involved or the locals involved. And um, in just in general, I mean, you have so many groups earlier, you know, with the Arameans, the Abelbet Makas, the Makatites, and you have the Gesher. I mean, so it's just this place that uh, it's hard to kind of control. And it's also the bordering in the in the in the on the Old Testament, Dan to Beersheba. And so it's, uh, it's really interesting to, to draw those connections across, uh, across time. So fascinating. Well, let's, uh, let's hone it in here a bit. And um, Andrea, you have, you just edited a new volume with Paul Kosmin uh, entitled The Middle Maccabees, Archaeology, History, and the Rise of the Hasmonean Kingdom. Now, before we jump into some specific points and continue you know, this bigger discussion of Galilee, can you define for some of our listeners what, you know, who, I should say, the Middle Maccabees are? Because I mean, most of them, I'm sure, know the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans. This is this kind of autonomous Jewish um, dynasty that forms their own kingdom in the, the second century up through the first centuries BC before Rome comes in and starts to interfere and then ultimately the Herods take over. But what what are we looking at right here, kind of chronologically speaking, when we're thinking about the Middle Maccabees, because this is going to tie into why it's so important to look at Galilee, particularly in this period? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Any historical era is something we define, right? We scholars and researchers from the outside and after the fact look back and say, oh, here's an epoch, here's an era, the roaring 20s or the, you know, the gay 90s of the 19th century or something like that. And in the case of antiquity, we are generally subject to the way that a lot of these eras were classified and highlighted and discussed by ancient authors, specifically ancient historians. So we have two apocryphal books, first and second Maccabees, who focus very, very strongly on the Jewish revolt and the, and the Maccabean revolt. And therefore, the general notion of the Maccabees as a period derived from that is it all starts and really is consolidated under Judah Maccabee and everything else just flows like that. And then the Romans come in and end it. Um, Easy peasy. Yeah. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, I had the good fortune to excavate with, with Sharon Herbert, um, a, a very unforeseen structure at the site of Kadesh, Tel Kadesh, 
uh, in the upper northeast corner of the upper Galilee. And we discovered a huge building that had been abandoned in a hurry in the year 143 BCE on a single day. It was abandoned and it was never reoccupied. And that threw into relief a moment that had been unremarked by ancient historians. And when I started to track down other information about that moment, I discovered two things. One, there was a lot more information about it, which nobody had brought together because they didn't think of it as a moment. So they were not connecting it with anything. And once I had all that information compiled, I could see that there was an era waiting for us to identify it. And I and Paul, uh, my, my collaborator in the book, The Middle Maccabees, came up with this designation. Why the Middle Maccabees? Because it's the generation after Judah Maccabee. It starts with his death. It starts when everything kind of doesn't cohere in, after he dies. And it lasts until things do cohere. So it's that period that we often forget in history, the middle. <laughs> We're all about, oh, there was a glorious kingdom that arose. That was just a matter of time. But nothing is just a matter of time. Everything is a matter of circumstance. And the middle Maccabees is about the circumstances that made the end seem inevitable, although it wasn't in the working out of it. Just in terms of, of timeline for our, for our listeners, I mean, you, we can we can say the names, you know, Judah the Hammer, Judah Maccabee, and these. What 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 time frame exactly are we talking about in the in the second century BCE? Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. So we're talking about from around 160 BCE down to about 120 BCE. That's about 40 years, and it's like one and a half generations. Right. That's that's really really important. And I mean, if we think about even that time of like that that time frame, even in the 21st century, like where we are now, I mean, that's that's a that's a, an eventful time period these last 40 years and there were these times in in ancient periods where you know things seemed to continue on for long periods of time but then things could happen very quickly in a in a rather short period of time and certainly within the 2nd and the 1st century things were were changing quite rapidly and I think it's so interesting the point you bring up about what gets recorded and what doesn't get recorded and it made me think of you know kind of a classic example in the book of Kings, where you have uh, the story of Ahab, where he's told so many of these details about him. And the one thing that you would think actually would be told is that he helped successfully fend off Shalmaneser III from attacking the uh, southern Levant. Uh, but it goes against what the author of the Book of Kings wants to say, uh, because Ahab's a jerk and he's, you know, got this uh, Sidonian wife and, and he wants to say all these bad things about him. But, you know, from archaeology, we learned that actually he was pretty strong and, and fended off. So it, it really is all a, a, you know, it's a question of, you know, why or why not these details are in recorded. And so um, archaeology doesn't always give us these nice insights, but it, but it often does, which I think is really important. And um, I, I guess the, the other thing I'd say is it's always important to look out for, you know, the, the UFO events. 
we always want to attach like a destruction layer to a particular king, whether it's the first Jewish revolt or the second Jewish revolt. If we go back, you know, it's Shishak, it's Hazel, and so on. But we always need to also consider, you know, there was a hundred years between these events. Maybe just the, the locals nearby said, enough with you. We're going to destroy you and, and burn down your city. And we just don't have that recorded historically. So uh, really interesting. So Andrea, yes, you had made this comment in this other presentation about as you're excavating at Tel Kadesh, that you were finding uh, the archae- in the archaeology things that just you weren't able to meld easily with the text because, again, the text isn't representing every single element here. And so trying to piece that together, and it's an interesting twist on... So number one, you basically, as you went through this whole project and talked to other people working in the Galilee, came up essentially with a, almost an archaeological anchor point in, in the Galilee for this time period for an event that we didn't have recorded in historical documents, which is kind of flip-flop from what we generally experience, at least in some of the periods where we have these historical documents that talk about an event, and then we try to peg specific archaeological remains to it. So it's, on the one hand, just th- this con- inverse situation that has paid off, I think, immensely. And it's opened up a can of worms, though, at the same time for so many other questions. And one of these, I think, is, you know, in, in your work and in the work of others in this, this volume, you, you realize that in the, in the mid-2nd century, a lot of sites are abandoned or destroyed in the Galilee. And I guess my question for you is, what, are, what kind of sites are we talking about here in this, in this region? Because it has some major implications, I think, f- for uh, considering military operations. Are we looking at cities? Are we looking at towns? Are we looking at rural states? I mean, what's, what are we dealing with here? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, in order to answer it, let me back up just one step to establish for the people who are listening the conflict between what is represented to us textually that explains what happened and what we have found on the ground. So what is represented to us textually, we know from the text of 1 Maccabees. 1 Maccabees treats this period, it continues to tell the history of Judah's successor, Jonathan, and uh, his two brothers, Jonathan and Simon, and then goes down uh, just to the into the reign of Simon's son, Hyrcanus. So this is a period that we do actually have some almost contemporary written testimony about, and that almost contemporary written testimony, which is written probably in the 120s or the 110s, tells the whole story of the conquest of Galilee as a, a Maccabean triumph. It's just one, one great move after another by these dudes. And it is a story like all stories and all histories written for a certain audience and with a certain agenda. And the agenda was to flatten out the complexity of the rise of the Hasmonean state and make it seem inevitable. Always easy after the fact. <laughs> yes. and, and we and we know from Josephus that not everybody liked the Hasmoneans. Right? <laughs> not uh, everybody liked the Hasmoneans, <laughs> even within the, the Hasmonean world, there were <laughs> lots and lots of disagreements. But the real enlightenment was the number of other much larger interests 
who were on the ground and with their eyes on Galilee. So in 1 Maccabees, Jonathan is depicted as a mighty player with all the arms and the money and the clout, and he's sashaying all around the region. He's going up to Hama, and he's coming back down to Damascus. He's all over the place. Um, but actually, he was, he was wherever he was going, and probably he wasn't going in all of those places so far flung, but wherever he was going, he was doing so as a general for the Seleucids. There was an imperial power in charge. There was no Hasmonean state at that time. <laughs> He was a functionary. He was a low-level player on a stage that was operational by much larger forces. And those forces were the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, who both wanted to retake in its entirety, not just Galilee, but the all of the southernmost Levant, and essentially take another step in recreating the huge united conquest of Alexander the Great and become a kind of mega ruler on their own. And they almost did it. And Jonathan was just a player for them. So in the 140s, all of the action in Galilee is really part of an enormous outside dynastic struggle. Jonathan is just one player among many. And it's so that's so interesting. Uh, just a quick observation here that you you point to the Ptolemies and the Seleucids as wanting to kind of follow in the footsteps of Alexander. And I think it's really interesting that you have all of these Hasmonean kings wanting to follow in the footsteps of David, uh, or you know, make the Solomonic Empire once more. And so they each have their 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 myth. And I'm not making a statement about history or not. I'm just saying that there's this this legend that is casting a shadow over their lives, uh, once much bigger scale, um, although ironically, I think the way it's known today, maybe David and his story is more known than Alexander, I'm not sure. But it's just interesting that you see kind of small potatoes and, and big potatoes in terms of these, but they're still motivated by these dynamics, which I, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, and then also, you know, how, how they went about you know, trying, to, trying to conquer them is... is uh, and make it real, and then also trying to conform that with the legend itself. You know, with the, with the story of the past, you know, the past becomes present to them and, and to, their, to their audience. Well, that's all extremely true and a great, great point. And I will give you yet another example. The Ptolemies ruled in a land with monumental temples and monumental reliefs and hieroglyphic inscriptions that could be read and were read by the priests there. And those also were a model hmm. for the Ptolemaic kings. And in that model, Palestine slash Canaan belonged to Egypt. So hmm. all these kings had what they would have deemed historic precursors who they were trying to live up to and recreate on the ground these visions that were laid out for them, whether in temple reliefs or texts, uh, they were they were seeking to recreate history in the present. Yeah, that's and you know it's and it's interesting because you've got on the one hand the official representation, the official the official aspirations, if you will, and then you've got the kind of everyday person. 
who, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're crafting these narratives, not only for fulfillment of your own ideology, let's say, but you're also crafting it to create an ideology for those that you want to actually follow you and to support you. And we see this time and again throughout, you know, throughout the Near East, throughout, you know, across various times of history. And we've got inscriptions where people will say, I'm the, you know, the king of this land. But on the other side, in Akkadian, it says, I'm the governor. Well, which one's going to sound better to the people that can read this? Well, I'm going to call myself the king because that's what I want you to think I am, right? But let's, let's focus a little bit here on some of these, these, lesser lesser individuals not much like us you know we're not we're not the royalty i guess here's my question I again draw it back to the you know, the kind of the nature of sites that we have in the galilee in the in the second century um you know are, are we looking at royal um outposts are we looking at kind of um sanctioned settlements or are these lots of rural estates where people are doing their thing um you know, interacting, maybe paying taxes. Again, what what is the nature here? What are we, you know, thinking of? Or what do we see in the archaeology, shall I say? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, Galilee is particularly interesting in this regard because it is kind of blank canvas at various times for new patterns to emerge and old patterns to reappear. So in the 8th century BC, as both of you know very well, Galilee was ground zero for some disastrous international machinations. And we know from archaeological surveys that it was quite largely wiped clean. It had been an area of dense village siting, some forts, but mostly just you know, rural villages, as the region so well supports. And under the Assyrians, many of those people were either killed, taken captive, relocated to areas of Mesopotamia, or moved to or moved on their own to cities on the coast where they probably worked in more laborious tasks. The Assyrians didn't need the breadbasket of Galilee, and they didn't allow anybody else to enrich themselves from the breadbasket of Galilee. So as long as the Assyrians were in charge, Galilee remained depopulated. So it was empty. It was really quite empty. It doesn't start to come back until under the Achaemenids in the 5th century BCE, the Achaemenids to take over from the Neo-Babylonians who took over from the Neo-Assyrians. So, so under the Achaemenids, we start to get some settlement in Galilee, and it's largely, again, scattered and rural. So at Kedesh, we do have a very, very large, very impressive building, which we think was established by the Tyrian royal house and was used as a kind of agricultural compound to collect grain and uh, grapes, possibly already made into wine, possibly not, and shipped back to Tyre, which had need of an agricultural hinterland. It's got very little agricultural territory. Now, can I just interrupt for just one second, because you bring in another player into this whole picture, and this is the, the Phoenician cities that are that are that have their little enclaves all along the coast, mainly Sidon and Tyre, kind of alternate control of sites down the coast. And it seems that um, the, Achaemen the Achaemenids give... A little bit more um, power and, and freedom to these these cities to expand or to do do their thing. Would I be right in saying that? 
Well, they, yeah, freedom is not exactly the right word, but probably. I put it, uh, I'll put it in air quotes. We just can't see it because it's a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, My theory about this is actually a little more brutal. It's a real quid pro quo. So in the early fifth century BCE, what is the chief aim of the Achaemenid Persian Empire? It's to expand into Greece. How do they need to do that? They need a navy. Mm-hmm. They're a land-based empire. They don't have ships. Who has ships? The Phoenician cities who are marketers and merchants and who've been sailing around the Mediterranean and all the way to the Straits of Gibraltar for several hundred years. They know how to build ships. They know how to sail them. They know the routes. So they have small navies. And the Achaemenids privilege the kings, the, the, the petty kings of the individual Phoenician city-states from Arados in the north to Tyre in the south, and give them sort of quid pro quo dispensations in exchange for them bringing their navies to serve the Persians in the wars with Greece. And we know that for a fact that they did this from the Greek historian Herodotus, who, who describes the kings of Tyre and Sidon sitting with Xerxes at the Battle of Salamis, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think that the Tyrians are given a giant land grant as a quid pro quo, mm-hmm. and that land grant is the Galilee. And that is what reinforces to them that Galilee belongs to them. So that's how they reemerge as a player on the scene in the 5th century B.C., that that's exactly what I meant by freedom. Thank you for articulating it. So, I would just I would just add to that. Um, you know, just again to um, you know draw out these bigger connections. Um, I'm reminded of a little bit later than this when we're talking about in the Book of Acts, where we have this conflict that exists between Herod Agrippa I and the people of Tyre and Sidon, and it specifically has to do with uh, with agriculture and the ability to have access. And, you know, that's the maybe the far end of the, the spectrum, but you could say the same thing. People have inferred it with even the alliance we alluded to earlier with Ahab and Jezebel as talking about Tyre and Sidon always needing to have this hinterland um, this access to agriculture. It's also reflected in, in Solomon and in First Kings. Uh, but you're seeing kind of the, not just the, the text tell us this, but the, the facts on the ground in terms of across periods, you, there's this need for these great coastal cities to have access to this hinterland for, for agriculture because they just, they just can't grow any, any, uh, enough, enough wheat and whatever other crop to, to survive. So it's, it's interesting again, you know, to see this, this big dynamic. Right. And at the end, uh, sort of at the end of the day, that dynamic, um, balances on a seesaw. The Tyrians to a large extent have economic interests in and needs for Galilee, but the Judeans have what you might call sort of emotional or psychological needs because Galilee is truly outside of Judea, and it is the conquered territory of the united monarchy. So if you hold Galilee, you are recreating history on the ground. The Judeans don't need Galilee for its agricultural potential, although that's nice. So one of the reasons they don't is because they have Samaria. 
very fertile and well-watered, not a problem. Jezreel, fertile, well-watered, not a problem. But they they want Galilee because it is the piece of the puzzle that remakes the history that they inherit. Really interesting. Now, do you think, I know this is a bit of an abstract question that, you know, it's it would be tough to show archaeologically, but in in dealing with the text, I mean, is do you think that we have this ideology already amongst the middle Maccabees as Jonathan is kind of doing his duty for the the Seleucids, or is it just kind of mere happenstance that that the later author of Mac, you know, slightly later author of First Maccabees, picks up on it and says, "Oh, actually, I'm just going to craft this narratologically into something that maybe wasn't part of the overall aspirations of this kind of burgeoning dynasty, if you will." Well, here's where the new archaeological evidence is pretty fascinating and I think helps us tell a persuasive and compelling story. And the archaeological evidence is clear that in the wake of the Seleucid dynastic conflict, a generation or so later, when the Hasmoneans are allowed to, like prairie dogs, stick their heads up and they look around and, oh, there are no Seleucids on the horizon getting in their way. There are no Ptolemies on the horizon. T- time to make a break for it. Where will we expand? There are a number of options. They could expand very comprehensively into the Sharon and Southern Coastal Plain. They could expand very comprehensively into the Shvela, very close, as you well know. Very convenient, also very fertile agriculturally but they don't they expand to galilee why is that yeah that's that's very very interesting and it it really does flesh it out that there's already this growing recognition that hey we're going to recreate something from our history and here we go with it and the fact too that you you know drawing you know if we're putting ourselves in the hasmonean kind of footsteps if we think about the picture of Galilee you just painted, that even as we move into the, the Persian period and the the early Hellenistic period, I mean, we're not looking at a, a hugely populated region. And so what is it going to take to move into that? Well, probably it's actually easier to move into Galilee, though it's further away, than it is, say, you know, Idumea or the, you know, the what used to be the, the Philistine coast or even the, the southern Phoenician coast. Well, um, that's not exactly that's that's no. a, that's a logical explanation, but it's not exactly true because okay. just as Galilee was kind of the slate was kind of clear, the table was kind of cleared in Galilee. The same thing happens in northern Idumea, Shvela. The same thing happens in the southern coastal plain and the central coastal plain. There's a lot. The Seleucid dynastic conflict, the initial conflict with with Ptolemy the sixth, and then the Seleucid dynastic conflict that resulted after Ptolemy the sixth's death was a brutal, hard-fought, and really devastating um, set of conflicts in which the Southern Levant was ground zero. Galilee was particularly affected, but all these zones were highly depopulated. So it would not have... Idumea and the the Northern Shvela is depopulated, and it does not rebound until the time of Herod, which makes it look like it was avoided. Interesting. 
Well, yeah. So then that, yeah, it really does lend to this, you know, the archaeology is really helping us hopefully get between, behind the, the scenes of the text, uh, shall we say. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. That's fascinating. And I, I would just add one, one point here, or and you feel free to comment. The other aspect, just for our, for our listeners, is when we talk about the Idumeans, there's also a kind of a cultural and ethnic background to this, because the Idumeans, um, even though the name sounds different, they're the Edomites. Uh, and there's an obvious connection between the Edomites, uh, read the book of Obadiah, uh, they don't think too kindly of one another, um, and it, of course, in the next generation, we know what happens with, with John Herkinus when he goes on his evangelical mission, uh, to Idumea, uh, with a flint blade. Um, and, and so there's this dynamic that exists also in the region of the Shvela. Um, and, uh, there's also, of course, with the Samaritans, which have some type of, uh, familial connection across the ethnicity, ethnic bounds. And so there's a, a lot of interesting dynamics. Um, closer to home, and so which which all add kind of a, more of a mystery to you know why choose Galilee uh, as, as, as far as what I'm what I'm gathering from this. Um, I think that's exactly right. I will only just uh, say that interesting dynamics is a nice euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> not, well put. We would not want to well be put. in that territory at that time. Yeah, I always like to tell my students that, you know, for those that might watch soap operas or, or like a whole lot of drama and other things, that this is this is the period more so than I think, you know, any of our dull Iron Age stuff that you, you really want to focus on because there is a lot happening here. And it seems that so there are so many intrigues politically uh, with economic underties, so many different players kind of coming onto the scene and jockeying for power that, yeah, it really is. Um, not a period you'd want to live in, let's say. Well, there, you know, that's a great point, Kyle, and there's a very specific reason for it. And that is that the way that the Seleucid Empire in particular functioned was as a set of interpersonal negotiations with local elites, local rural landlords or chiefs or sheikhs, depending on which part of the empire you are talking about. So in Amman, it would have been sheikhs. And in the coastal cities of the Levant, it would have been elites, aristocrats, or, you know, the wealthy. Um, And in zones that were temple cities and Jerusalem is not the only one. There are several in Anatolia as well. It was the priests. And we know this very well from the early chapters of the book of Maccabees, that there was a lot of negotiating with the high priest in Jerusalem in, in the early days. This was the, so power was as much a negotiated concept as a fact on the ground. Everybody had to buy in and believe. But what that means is that when one side goes haywire, the whole system explodes. And it is therefore not actually possible to decide if some of the repercussions that we see on the ground are all top-down imperial battles or what some historians or modern political geographers today would call neighborly violence. The lid comes off the pot and everybody gets the chance to 
see if they can get a little more for themselves. Yeah, it's such a great point. And let's let's run because you you talk a bit about this in some of your your work on Telkadash. And before before we jump right into that, because it's so fascinating, I just want to point out that there is such a parallel. You know, being a guy who's working with the early Israelite monarchy, this is the nature of political power in the Iron Age as well. I mean, it's the nature of power in the Bronze Age, as, from what we can tell. Also, that it's all the social networking, so to speak. And so, if you don't keep that network thing going, it it falls apart pretty quickly and it can lead to pretty, and you see that, you know, if we go with the biblical chronology for early Israelite monarchy, you've got David and Solomon and then it falls apart. Well, that didn't last long. Well, that's, that's the nature of the, the structuring of political realities in, in this period, in this time. Now, now let's come back to your work at Tel Kadesh and build off this point that you were, you're making that, you know, Oftentimes, I think archaeologists love to see imperial, biblical proportion type things in their site or their destruction or this, that, or the other. And you raise this interesting point that sometimes it's not that. I mean, we can have that, but we need to delve into other layers and see what we're dealing with. So maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about what you've got at Tel Kadesh that might kind of illustrate what you're what you're getting at. Well, if I'm guessing correctly, what you're trying to get me to talk about here. Uh, um, it is a discovery that we made in the second year that we were excavating at the site. So that was a long time ago now. Um, the year 2000 was our second big season. We were So we have, again, for your listeners, um, we had already determined in the, in the first season, thanks to a combination of data from a magnetometric survey that kind of gave us an x-ray of what was under the ground, and then some targeted excavation, we discovered that we had an enormous building, a single enormous building, 20,000 square feet, 2,000 square meters. Just huge. Wow. Yeah. Just <laughs> That's <immense>. enormous. <laughs> it's so big that when you stand in the room at the northeast corner, you cannot see the southwest corner. <laughs> Holy cow. It's just <laughs> giant. And in the... In one corner of this huge building, we discovered an archive. We didn't sort of happily discover <laughs> any papyri. I say happily because that would have just completely destroyed our budget and <laughs> forced us to pay all this attention to these documents, which would have all been things like, you know, Xenophanes sold me. Get, I'm renting half my courtyard from Xenophanes. You know, like probably are interesting in a micro history sort of way, but we're not what we were after. So anyway, but we found um, little clay boli that had originally sealed papyrus documents, and we found over two thousand of them. So we found, so we found an archive that was exceptional and exciting. And then we discovered something extremely unexpected and kind of tragic. We discovered up against the northern wall of the archive room, inside and close to the floor level, the deliberate burial of an infant, an, a, a very young infant, could have been just born. And the reason that the burial was, the burial was well-preserved, and the reason it was well-preserved is because the room had been deliberately set on fire. And when it was deliberately set on fire, the wooden roof beams of the room caught on fire, came down, bringing with them the mud brick superstructure of the walls that then collapsed and burned in place. So it kind of turned into hard brick. 
and it buried the infant in place. And the doorway to the archive room had been partially blocked before this happened. So that, and the, and, and this archive room was the only room in the entire building that had been set on fire. So it was this extremely deliberate act. And of course the question is who did it? We are confident because of the correlation of datable objects, the abrupt abandonment of the building and a text in first Maccabees that describes a battle that is situated in the precise year that we can date the abandonment, that the site had been the location of probably a Seleucid garrison who fled in a hurry in the wake of a competing Seleucid army in the case of the civil wars. And Jonathan, the Hasmonean brother, Jonathan was the Seleucid, one of the Seleucid generals on the scene. But there would have been no reason for either of those parties to carry out this event. The Seleucid administrators and people who were living there left in a hurry, and it would have been completely useless for them um, to effect some sort of sacrificial scene when an army is coming up over the ridge and about to get them. They just had to be unmoved. And there's no reason for the... Jonathan's army working as a Seleucid general to have carried out something of this nature either. There was no need to do it. They didn't have any personal investment in that archive or that building. It was way far beyond their actual territorial area. So it had to be somebody who comes back. It had to be somebody who had some stake in the building as an administrative center and comes back to make some kind of revolutionary statement that is anti-imperial because the target is the archive room and this event pollutes the archive room, makes it impossible to ever imagine using it again. And this brings to the fore a whole set of players and a whole set of agendas and a whole set of prerogatives that we had no idea existed in this territory. So none of this is at all intimated or alluded to in the text of First Maccabees. The text of First Maccabees has a very truncated end to Jonathan's adventure up here. 3,000 people died of the other side. Jonathan returned to Jerusalem. End of story. End of chapter 11. Chapter twelve has Jonathan doing other things. <laughs> yeah, so so fascinating. I think to be able to parcel out some of these less than imperial lever level actions, and I think this is the thing. So many archaeologists, I, I think, really eat up, shall we say, and just and and really want to to articulate. But um, so after this. So let's say we've, we've got these local players as well. So once the the Hasmoneans come and take over, what I mean, how does it how does it shift? Do we see anything in the archaeology that there's a, a kind of clear change in the nature of the population, um, or or does it stay kind of the same? What's what's happening? Well, the 
the discovery of the little burial and the timing of it tells us that there are deep interests, emotions are high, and there are other agendas at play here. And they're probably Tyrion. Now, in the aftermath of the Seleucid Civil Wars, in the aftermath of these events, Kadesh, like, like almost all of Galilee, is abandoned. It's not reoccupied. Um, this episode in the archive room probably took place very shortly after the abandonment, and then people went away. But a generation later, in this exact zone, at the other side of the valley from Kadesh, and down in the Hula Valley, just below the Upper Galilee Plateau, where Kadesh is located, both Jewish and Tyrians settle. They settle within viewing eyeshot of each other. So, they're, and they're there sort of side by side for about a half a generation, about 20 or 30 years. And it, they, they're both trying to stake their claim to this place. Um, they both feel justified in doing it. They both feel compelled. They do it in very different ways. The Hasmoneans build forts. The Phoenicians, the Tyrians build rural villas, very elaborate rural villas with wealthy goods, to, goods that some of which were probably traded. They like glassware, for example. Um, they live a very nice life in a, in, a, in a very nice place for a little while. But eventually the, um, the Hasmoneans can't hold Upper Galilee, but they hold it long enough to scare the Tyrians off. So there is a generation after all of the brouhaha of, this, of the Seleucid-level dynastic civil war, low-level, now we're back to this neighborly violence kind of thing or posturing or standoff between peoples who pretty clearly don't like each other. They don't exchange stuff. It, it's it's amazing archaeologically that the Husmanian sites and the Phoenician Tyrian sites that are literally a couple hours walk away from each other. I mean, you could stroll from one to the other, have totally different sets of material culture. Mm. They're shopping in different places. They are representing themselves to themselves and to outsiders in completely different ways. So they don't like each other very much. Really fascinating. Um, and just as a kind of a follow-up question, and <clears throat> feel free to swing back and talk about the Hasmoneans more, but, uh, you know, growing up in, um, you know, just in a different environment, you, you, you know, read the Old Testament and then you read the New Testament, and I'm sure many of our listeners will, would have done that, and many of them are Protestant, probably have never heard of uh, First and Second Maccabees, maybe they've heard of the Maccabees, you know, the, the, ba the acapella band. Um, <laughs> but awesome. They are, they are quite good. They're, they're our next guests. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but but what I'm what I'm hearing is it seems like that all of the stuff that you have um, studied and uncovered and been involved in these uh, great research projects will have a an enormous impact upon the makeup of Galilee uh, once we get into the the next century into the first century in the time of the New Testament. I mean, it seems. I mean, it really should, anyone who has a, a mind to think about the the New Testament and you find, you know, Jesus, regardless of how you think of the history, they're in Nazareth, I mean, and, and they're in Galilee, and then there's Jewish kings in Galilee. Like, how is it that you go from the close of the canon and, and Malachi, and then 
you know, wake up and you're in Galilee. Uh, there's a lot that's happened and transpired in that time frame. And um, so I, I would just maybe ask a general question to to comment on, um, you know, what is this transition look like? And do you see like a direct connection, there, therefore, between what happened with the Hasmoneans uh, coming into Galilee and then the kind of the setup of, of Second Temple period slash New Testament gospel era uh, of Galilee? And I have a follow-up to that, but I'll, I'll save it. Uh, so uh, go ahead. Um, the patterns of the second and the first early first century BCE set up an oppositional dynamic. There are two choices anybody who lives in this region can opt for. You can opt for a Western-oriented, Mediterranean-oriented, cosmopolitan, worldly lifestyle that is focused on the goods and consumer culture of the moment, present day. That's what the Tyrians do. That's what that's how the Tyrians live, even in that villa in the Hula Valley. And the opposite is this historical recreation on the ground. This is sacred land with a long, long past, and we are the ones with the lease. And in the Hellenistic period, in the second century and in the early first century, the divide is relatively neat along ethnic lines. Judeans are one, Tyrians are the other. But in the Herodian period, everybody who's living up here, or most of the people who are living up here, are Jewish. Most of them are Jewish. But they're not all Jewish in the same way. There are two ways, two directions. Herod, his sons, the aristocrats or the elites, the people who found the town of Tiberias, reestablished the town of Sepphoris, build a theater there. Those people are following a path that the Tyrians laid down. It's this worldly cosmopolitan path. And people who live in rural farmsteads or right around the Sea of Galilee are following a different path. And though that has that carries its own set of internal tensions that eventually divide the social fabric, the Jewish social fabric of the region. And those social tensions are the background to the life of Jesus, and those social tensions are very clear in the Gospels. So interesting. And I, I think that I always tell people that are interested in kind of New Testament backgrounds. I mean, in some ways, we, we've all, always had access to the book of Maccabees. <laughs> and, you know, you can, you, you know, when I'm thinking about that passage in John, where it says they, they seek to force him by, uh, to, to become king. And the implication is, is a king like what? Well, you're thinking if, you know, David and so, but it's like the, maybe like the Hasmoneans who came and, and conquered this, uh, this vicinity. And so I think it's such an important detail that is often overlooked. And then as kind of a follow-up question to this, because I know you've also done some work on the the temples around uh, Panias or Banias and Caesarea Philippi. And uh, I've always, I mean, we, we Kyle, both, both of us have, have 
traveled Israel extensively and gone on lots of tours. So we've been to all these places, and it's, it's always so striking that you have these three temples to Augustus by Herod, one at, at uh, Caesarea, the other one at uh, Sebastia, which is the Greek name of Augustus, and then the other one at Caesarea Philippi. Um, and so, first of all, I would be interested in your thoughts about whether you think it's Omri, I know you've written something on this, Omri or at uh, Caesarea Philippi. And then second, how this uh, also fits in with kind of the point you were making about, you know, this Jewish identity going in different directions at this time because you have Philip there. Um, and so anyway, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Uh, yeah. So, right. Herod um, is granted... Iturian territory in around the year 20 by the Roman Emperor Augustus. And as a thank offering, he builds a little temple to Augustus. I believe that we have the site of the temple that he built, and it's in front of the cave at the Sanctuary of Pan. You know, in 20 BCE, there were very many people living up here. It was <laughs> rural, and it was like there was no city at Caesarea Philippi. Herod Philip had not, you know, inherited his territory and, and built a city there. The sanctuary of Panabanus was a rural sanctuary, and it was the only game in town. There was nothing else around there. Mm. So there's only one logical place for Herod to put this temple, and that was the place that people went to. Right. <laughs> Some place where people aren't. So um, that's one of the reasons that I believe that the site immediately in front of the cave it pretty much exactly as josephus describes it to us and as we have archaeological evidence for is is his temple herod dies his third son herod philip inherits all this territory he builds a capital city at the foot of the cliff of mount hermon and the sanctuary of pan banyas the panan overnight is transformed from a rural sanctuary to a city sanctuary and Caesarea Philippi, like all ancient cities, had land. It had a hinterland. And how did you know when you were entering the territory of a city? Usually, there was a sanctuary. There was a temple. It wasn't like today where, you know, you're on the road and it says, welcome to California. <laughs> there was a shrine of some sort. Shrines were where the protective deity of a place made his or her presence felt. So Herod Philip marks the edge of his territory with a temple just like Dad's, but even bigger, actually, on this hill um, at Herbert Omri, which is today just next to the modern kibbutz of Kfarsold on the edge of the Golan Heights and the edge of the Hula Valley. Great site. And, it's a great site. A great site. site. <laughs> well worth seeing. And that is an enormous statement of cultural affiliation. It is a huge Roman-style temple to a human being. Everything about that is alienating to the Jews who live in the territory. It is like throwing down the gauntlet. And I do not think it is a coincidence that it is right then that we know from Josephus that rebellious, the seeds of revolution were planted. It was an in-your-face, confrontational statement of who's in charge and what matters. 
Fascinating. Yeah. And so, so you're, what you're basically saying is, is that both are essentially related to Caesarea Philippi in terms of the, in terms of the temples, but I would totally agree with you. In fact, I read like the last page of your article and I read Josephus. I'm like, it has to be the one that's right. Like, it's like, <laughs> describes it exactly. Uh, it has to be the one right by the cave. Um, so I, I, I would fully agree with you. I mean, not that my opinion on this matters because it's way past my expertise, but it's, it, I, I think it makes great sense. And just, it's also interesting that you have this particular building. And, and I think there's some, been some recent excavations during COVID by the IAA where they've, uh, it's, where they've shown more of this temple, but they've also shown a basilica that was built over the same place. And it's, it's interesting that Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history, he makes reference to this and some bronze statue that people would look at. So it's, it's got this long standing connection that it remembers back to paganism uh, and the identities that you talked about that also now mixes in, you know, kind of a New Testament perspective on, uh, but it's also kind of pagan too. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Well, as we move to the end here, I think we have one, one, well, Chris, do you want to ask any other, any other questions? Cause I'm going to change the tone here for a second and we're going to, we're going to lighten it up a little bit. So Andrea, we want to know, this is probably the most important thing. What is a funny, ridiculous thing that has, that you've seen or experienced on an excavation? And this is, you know, we try to lighten it up a little bit. We were asking people, you know, when you get up super early in the morning, do you drink coffee or tea? But I'm going to amp it up a notch. And I'm going to say, what is it? Can you think of an, an appropriate story that our listeners would like to hear that tells them how much fun and how ridiculous things can be on an excavation? Oh, my goodness. I'm catching wow. you off guard here. I didn't, I didn't yeah, you tell are. you to prepare for this one. <laughs> that wasn't in the list of questions. <laughs> not in the list of questions. And I do not have some hilarious or humorous tale, but but I do have a story of the most amazing thing I ever found and how it completely reoriented my idea of what sort of archaeologist I was. Well, that sounds well, better. That. that sounds yeah, even let's better. Do that. Well, you know, all of us who dig, we dig for knowledge, we dig for history. We we dig we we dig for ideas, right? We are interested in um, we are interested in the creation of, of of new knowledge. I never thought of myself as the sort of archaeologist who had a ready answer to the question, "What's the coolest thing you ever found?" I used to always say, "The coolest thing I ever found was the last thing that I found," because every single thing that I found felt like it belonged to somebody. I was seeing a person, and I was seeing some little piece of unwritten history. Then on the last hour of the last day of the last week of the last month of the last season that we worked at Kadesh, and I don't can even not even count how many <laughs> hours and days and weeks and months that comprised. We were there from 1997 to 2011. We were cleaning in the very last seconds for aerial photos, drone photos of this giant 20,000 square foot building. And I was down at one end of the building and I heard one of the students who was cleaning call my name. And there was just something about his tone of voice that got my attention. It was quiet, but it was urgent. So I made my way over to him and he said, close your eyes and hold out your hand. And I did. 
And the second I felt what he put in my hand, I knew before I even opened my eyes that it was a solid gold coin. Because I don't know if anybody has ever put a solid gold coin in one of your hands, but (laughs) it's very heavy. Hmm. It's very, very dense. And gold doesn't react. So it stays bright and shiny. Then he said, open your eyes. And I looked down at a dusty but completely recognizable solid gold coin with a queen (laughs) face on one side and a cornucopia on the other. And in that moment, I understood that I was not exactly the lofty knowledge-seeking archaeologist (laughs) only. Fortune and glory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that there's something to be said for the most glamorous of objects, which this certainly was. <laughs> oh, that's that's fantastic. I only wish that moment for every archaeologist out there. So, <laughs> oh, great. Well, that that is that is fun. You know, it's it's funny. We I we were at the Albright together back shortly after you guys. I think it probably just finished that season. So you you took us on a tour of that site. And uh, nobody gave me a giant gold coin while we were there. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed, but, you know, I, I, I've survived, though. I'm okay. <laughs> well, anyway, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. We've, we've chatted a lot about the Hasmoneans, Galilee, just touched the, the surface on a, a number of really interesting topics and issues. Uh, Andrea, we just want to thank you so much for coming on here. And do you want to, is there anything you'd like to say to, to kind of close this out here? Any last parting thoughts? This was a lot of fun. Thanks very much for having me. Good, good. Well, hopefully, yeah, we can uh, convince you maybe with another gold coin to come on again. So we'll see. (laughs) All right. You work on that. Yep. I'll I'll work. Well, Unscript listeners, thank you. This has been another episode of of our podcast. And we'll we'll list up some of Andrew's resources so those who want to go further can can see what those are and, and delve a bit into some of these topics themselves. So until next time, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>